Hello, everyone. This is Susan. Welcome to the Peace Building Podcast, where we track down as many of the most interesting people as we can find around the planet who are intervening in creative and sometimes outrageous ways to bring people together to build peace on the planet, whether that's what they're intending to do or not. We got a little slowed down on getting out this episode. I'm working with my sound guy, um, Scott, who um, is an incredible help and has his finger on the pulse of younger listeners. So we've been trying to mix it up, thinking about ways we can make the podcast as magnetic as possible and, uh, you know, have a goal of seeing if we can get 10,000 listeners, uh, both serving people that are... Uh, actually in the peace building field, but people who know nothing about it and just want to hear some really cool stories about how people are um, are working out in the world in really constructive ways, in contrast to what we hear on the media. So um, let me see, just some updates on me. I went to a play recently called Oslo. Um, pretty interesting. Check it out. I don't know if you get an opportunity to do that, but it's about uh, a back-channel process orchestrated by a Norwegian diplomat and her husband to bring together Yasser Arafat, who was the Palestinian leader at the time, and Shimon Peres, who was the Israeli leader at the time. It's a pretty interesting play. Just uh, um, It does a good job of showing how the formal diplomatic structures can get in the way of creating real dialogue and just really how kind of antiquated that whole system is because there's so much uh, new process ideas out there of ways to bring to people together. A lot of what we're talking about on the Peace Building Podcast that really could be incorporated at, at lots of different levels of a system, you know, the higher up level, which is where usually those dialogues happen, but all the way through the system in ways that could create an entirely different climate of conversation and dialogue. So anyway, um, that's always something that interests me is how can we how can we actually up level what we're doing in the field of international relations? I'm headed to uh, China to Shanghai in a week to uh, deliver a speech um, at the International Elite Women's Summit there. This is the fourth time they've held this summit. um, And I'm going to be speaking to a thousand women and the, um, the, the theme of the conference is more courage, more strength. And my particular focus is going to, the title of my speech is going to be Igniting Women, The Pathway to Planetary Peace, a topic that I'm super stoked about um, in all the thinking about the different ways that we can intervene to um, build common ground, to build peace on the planet, I basically think that um, bringing, uh, uh, empowering women across the board, across the planet, um, from the family system right up to the global level is going to bring um, the biggest shift and the change that we need. So stay tuned for that. If I like what I do, I will definitely broadcast it on the podcast. My guest on the show today is someone I go way back with, actually to the beginning of my of my career in working in negotiation and conflict resolution. Um, His name is Dean Foster, and uh, his name is kind of synonymous with intercultural training and consulting. He's worked in about 100 countries, teaching people about cultural differences and cross-cultural communication, and has been a speaker and lecturer uh, all over the place. So you might want to check out his impressive bio on the website. 
uh, Dean and I got started uh, together long ago training people in intercultural negotiations, and then he kind of veered off and majored in culture and minored in negotiation, and I did the opposite. I continued to focus on negotiation, blending culture into it. Uh, he was a super smart one. He built up his business and then sold it to Berlitz for, for a nice handsome sum um, and then continued in the biz. So go Dean. Um, I caught up with him somewhere between his tri- a trip of his to Prague um, and, and New York and um, liked this quote early on, something like, um, when faced with something we don't understand or that we find mystifying, we always have a choice. Uh, We can decide to approach this as an opportunity for growth and learning, um, a positive approach to working with this issue, or we can approach it fearfully, um, something that, you know, as something that's dangerous to us. Uh, so Dean's going to talk about that and his experience. He he's also going to talk about he in the in the entire time that he's been doing this, he's really seen this shift um, of globalization over the last 25, 30 years. You know, I remember when we actually started in this biz, and people were saying inside companies there is you know there's no need for cross cultural understanding. We really have. a a global culture, a global multinational culture now um, that transcends any individual culture. Um, I just don't think that ever really has been the case, although there's some truth to it, for for sure. Um, Dean says what's interesting is that he sees in the millennial generation um, a greater acceptance that cultural differences exist but not necessarily a real increase yet in understanding about what those differences are. So uh, I tried in this interview to get Dean to put himself in the center of the universe, uh, his universe, which is Brooklyn, New York, and, uh, and then give us a sense of how different cultures, like how uh, a middle-aged guy from China might perceive him, how somebody from Russia might perceive him. We sort of did a little bit of that. It didn't quite work, but it always is interesting to just get a sense that how you're perceived, of course, has everything to do with who's doing the looking and will be perceived differently um, all over the world by, by, um, by lots of different people. So Dean's going to talk about uh, some projects he did um, supporting a, 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 an American multinational working with a Russian team. That's going to be a, the biggest story he tells uh, a bit about China, talking about multicultural teams, because that's the way so much business is done these days. Um, so hope you have, uh, hope you're able to give it a listen. Hope you enjoy the episode. Um, please, as always, give me some feedback directly to Susan at thepeacebuildingpodcast.com. We are working on our Facebook page so that we can have more of a dialogue there. And uh, thanks for listening. Really appreciate it. So, Dean, it's uh, great to have you. You and I go way back. And uh, we haven't talked too much over the last number of years, but you've had an amazing journey. You've worked in 100 countries around the world. And um, I think I wanted to start uh, the the conversation today with you just reflecting on yourself as a little kid and maybe, you know, retrace your, your footsteps, obviously, you know, the big, the highlights of kind of 
what got you to where you are today? Like what planted the seeds in you to uh, end up doing so, doing this kind of work, this intercultural work all over all over the planet? Um, you, uh, you you game to give a little shot at that question? Yeah, sure. <laughs> thanks, Susan. Uh, thanks for asking because it gives me an opportunity to reflect a little bit, you know, um, going way, way back. Uh, and I guess I could be simplistic and just start by saying I was really bad at math when I was a kid <laughs> and I knew that wasn't my strong suit. Um, but I was interested in the sciences. And um, so how am I going to put that together? Well, I could go to social sciences, right? Or I could um, go into the arts and I did that a little bit in my life as well. Um but I, I think in combination with the interest in, in social sciences was this um, opportunity that I had, luckily. I mean, I grew up in in multicultural Brooklyn, New York, you know, where we lived in an apartment house with um, people from all over the world. A and, very multicultural um, place, Brooklyn. So Brooklyn is part of, part of New York City. Um, I'm just saying that because some people may not know. And how many cultures do you – I know like in Queens, another part of New York City, it's – ridiculous it's like a hundred and i don't know 15 cultures how many do you think are in uh, brooklyn oh I, I can't imagine i mean it's the whole world yeah and even when i was growing up as a kid the nature of that demographic changed of course at the time in in the apartment house where i grew up there were you know um italians and jews and blacks and hispanics um and, and I'm sure that the, the the numbers and the percentages, if you looked at it today, would be different, but it would still be an incredible mix of people from all over the world. And I grew up with this. I remember um, spending holidays that I didn't know anything about when I was a small child, uh, simply by going down the hall and going into my friend's house and, and I could see how they were celebrating something that I that was a mystery to me. And I guess, you know, that was one of the first really formative experiences. And it goes way, it goes back into into my DNA almost. Um, because what I learned, I think, was that something that is different and maybe mysterious is really all about a, a lot of fun. It's not something necessarily to be frightened of. It's not something to be fearful of. In fact, something that enriches your life. I mean, I always felt like going into my friend Russ's house, who was in a Roman Catholic Italian and celebrating midnight mass with him was mysterious and unusual, but a lot of fun. And, and so maybe it gave me an outlook uh, toward looking at cultural differences. Not only was it interesting, but it also was something to be embraced and uh, possibly understood, but always approached with a certain openness and positiveness that um, that was the opposite, I think, of what we experience when we deal with cultural differences today on a professional level. Were there ever moments that you remember feeling afraid? Never afraid. No. Um, never fearful. Sometimes lost, I think. Sometimes not understanding. But I think that's precisely the issue, um, that when faced with something that we don't understand or that we um, find mystifying, we have a choice. We can decide to approach this as an opportunity um, for growth, learning, experience, enrichment, uh, a positive approach to working with this issue, or we can approach it fearfully 
we can approach it feeling that it's something that's dangerous. And I think in the professional work that I've come to do over the last 25 years, it's really been all about helping people approach the issue of cultural difference from a positive perspective as opposed to a fearful one. Hey, Dean, how how does it feel like when you think when you scan from your childhood to now, uh, all your travels, how do you feel? What's your broad brush, you know, observation about how the world has changed with respect to, I guess, cultural integration or cultural awareness or, you know, what, what do you see as sort of the big themes that have happened? Well, I mean, certainly globalization, and by that we mean all of the forces that have been going on for the last 25, 30 years, um, has increased an awareness of cultural differences, right? So, you know, if you take a look at the millennial generation, for example, I mean, they are much more aware of the fact that cultural differences exist. Uh, We used to have to struggle in our work in just getting people to acknowledge the fact that cultural differences were really an issue, that they existed, they were on the table, that it was something you needed to work with. Um, Today, I don't think we have to do that so much uh, because people have traveled all over and and there's there's been a greater opportunity for uh, people to come in contact with cultural difference. And I think, you know, this is a good news, bad news issue. Um, because there's been much more cultural contact through media, through transportation, through travel, etc. But that doesn't mean, and I think this is the danger, it doesn't mean that there's any more understanding. There's, there's a greater awareness that it's an issue that's on the table, but what I do about it, how I react to it, how I manage it, has not really changed. That still requires a lot of understanding and a lot of work. And um, I think that we have to be very sensitive to this difference because there's a tendency to assume that either the world has homogenized in some sort of global place where we can, in fact, uh, work with each other despite cultural differences. Uh, That's a dangerous position to take, I think. because the cultural differences are profound. They will always be there. Globalization has not eliminated them. Uh, If anything, it's only highlighted them, I think. And um, simply being aware that they're there, but not still not knowing what to do about them is a, a tricky place to be. I always, you know, have said about culture, you know, that that culture is to a group what personality is to an individual. And it's kind of like a group personality, if you will. And I know that for myself, I um, one of the reasons I spent a good bit of time in Latin America and learned Spanish. And I I think that was intentional for a number of reasons in that I come from a, a British American background and Latin culture really was a great kind of counterbalance. It kind of opened up a lot of other ways of seeing the world and a more emotional way of seeing the world. Um, yeah, a lot of things about that. Also a, a less, maybe a less sense of entitled way of seeing the world. Um, how has, you know, you've really, you've really been around the world a lot. And how have you, and you've been thinking about culture. How do you feel like, have you changed as a cultural being? Have you expanded? Have you, I don't know, what would you say about that? Yeah, I'm still 
the kid from Brooklyn. <laughs> I'm, I'm, well, that's an intercultural still, person, you know. That's <laughs> <laughs> mm, mm. I, what I mean by that is um, I, I think I've become in many ways more authentic to myself. Uh, I've learned through all of these experiences that you have to be yourself. And so in a sense, I've become more of who I always was. Um, but I've done so, I think, with an understanding, hopefully, of what it means to be me to the other person who's not me. And, and by that, I mean who I am, I understand now, has a certain meaning to someone else who is not me. And, and I hopefully understand what that meaning is so that I can help. Wait, wait, can you say that? I didn't quite get that. Say that again. Yeah. I, I'm still me. Yeah, okay. And maybe I'm more me than I ever was, actually, hopefully. But I'm me with an understanding of, of, of who me what, is. I see. Of yeah. who me is and an understanding of what the other person perceives me to be. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so, that, so, so that we can build some common ground. If I know how you're seeing me and if I understand you because I've learned about your culture, it doesn't mean I have to be less of who I am. In fact, I can be even more of who I am. And we can build some common ground around the fact that I know how you're, be, you're perceiving me. I know why you're making the judgments you're making about me. And I understand your culture, so I'm going to understand why you're doing what you're doing. And it just helps us build some common ground a whole lot faster. So, so let me ask you something, Dean. That's interesting. Uh, with, I mean, we, we are going to get into some stereotypes here, but maybe. But how do you think uh, me, you, is perceived by, like, say, a Chinese, I mean, I don't know, like um, sort of maybe a cultural norm person from China? Can we say that? Can we ask that question? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, 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 think, I think you're right. You know, we do go into stereotypes um, when you talk about culture, and I, I like to distinguish stereotypes from generalizations, right? Um, you know, valid generalizations are based on scientific study. Uh, social scientific analysis tells us that under certain circumstances, most Chinese or certain population of Chinese, if you control for the different factors, are going to tend to behave a certain way when encountering a U.S. American from Brooklyn, New York. Um, and I think we can make some valid statements about what those, what the Chinese perception might be, um, just as we can make some valid statements about what a U.S. American might tend to do when encountering the Chinese for the first time. Um, if we understand what those generalizations might be, and, and hopefully they are valid and backed up by social scientific research, then we can approach each other and get beyond them, I think, a little faster and actually have fun with them. So could you right? do something? Uh, could you do a little game for us here? And could you put yourself in the center of the world and just like briefly kind of go around, hit some countries around the world and tell me how you might be seen differently purely from a generality? I know we're making generalizations, but how might you be seen differently? Well, I think people are are going to start with their own built-in stereotypes about U.S. Americans. So the first thing I try to do, because I believe that people are probably going to do that, w without any information 
to the contrary, I have to assume that that they don't know anything about me and therefore they are going to generalize or maybe even stereotype. So my first approach is to support whatever positive assumptions they have about me while doing everything I can to dismiss the negative assumptions. <laughs> so if I know, for example, that I'm going to be perceived um, in continental Europe as a loud, over-the-top American who's come here to tell us what to do and doesn't understand how we do things here, if that's the, the initial stereotype that I, that I think I might expect, then I have to do everything I can to undermine that expectation and be someone who indicates otherwise, that I'm here to listen, not to tell, that I'm here to understand how you do things before I make suggestions about how I'd like to do, how I think you think should be done. Um, and once I kind of disempower the stereotype by my own behavior, then we can get on with really discovering who we each are. Can you go around the world and, and, and do exactly what you just did with Europe? Can you give those kind of prejudgments that might occur towards you? I mean, I don't know. Maybe you don't want to even do this, but it's kind of interesting to see just uh, how how the world might perceive a white guy from Brooklyn, um, you know, American guy from Brooklyn. Any other circling the globe kind of uh, uh, things that you could say? Well, I think, you know, um, from my own experiences, um, let's take a look at Japan, for example. Um, because of Japanese culture and because of the interaction of Japanese culture and U.S. American culture and all of the media and politics around, around that that goes on with every, between every culture, um, one of the impressions that I th – one of the perceptions that I think I receive until I – undermine them until I actively um, discount them for the individual is the fact that I could never really understand who they are, that I'm always going to be the guy Jin on the outside who needs to be handled um, and controlled in a, in a kind of object arm's length way. Um, and so what I want to do is actively work toward uh, – indicating to my Japanese colleagues that I do understand their culture to probably a greater degree than most U.S. Americans and that I want to have a relationship that is not at arm's length and, the, and I want to invite them to tell me more about who they are um, so that we can get to a more honest place. So the expectation, for example, in Japan, to your question, is that um, I need to be treated at arm's length and I can't really have a closer relationship than that. Mm -hmm. And so I, I want to actively work to, to undermine that expectation. Dean, what is, uh, uh, what is the most foreign – what has felt the most foreign culture or intercultural experience that you have had? Well, on a professional level, working interculturally, I think um, one of the most far, foreign, meaning uh, something that I could not, that I had difficulty wrapping my head and arms around, um, and, and I would say heart as well, um, 
was my mother's father's culture <laughs> uh, when I, which, <clears throat> which is which is which is Russia. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had great. I, I think my greatest professional challenges have been to work with Russians. Um, they provided me with the the biggest um, challenge to understanding and to emotionally allow for myself emotionally uh, um, allowing them to be who they are and still positively respond productively respond to them um i found them i found it difficult for me to do that um i don't think it's a function of how of difference uh, it's not that they are that much more different because i've certainly worked with cultures that are um significantly more different from from my culture uh, but it's the it, it's the content of the differences not the degree of differences and the differences that i encountered working professionally with russians challenged me to come up with productive responses um and, and that was hard could you say could you dig into that a little bit i mean i'm, I'm curious like was that uh, could you tell us more about what happened? Uh, I'm interested in getting into some stories, maybe, and uh, and maybe we could just get into a story there, or um, or any story that you want to get into. But um, but I am left with a wondering about the Russia example. Is that because of your personal psychology, or um, you know, because it's your mother's father? It was your grandfather, and who knows how that influenced you and why that whatever? Um, or is it something to do with your cultural norms and sort of the, some of the general cultural norms in Russia. Um, yeah, yeah. It was about cultural norm differences. Um, I try to separate the psychology piece out of it. Uh, I think I've been a fairly reflective fellow, and um, I, I think I don't. I I actively try not to um, bring that piece to the process. Um, I want to stay objective uh, whenever whenever I can. Um, building a personal relationship with someone is, is a little bit different. But working with the Russians, for example, was challenging because of the norm, the, the normative differences. My expectation was Well, that, first, let me, let me uh, back up for a second. What, when you say you worked with the Russians, what were you doing? Can you set it up for us a little bit? What was the, yeah, what was I was, the situation? Right. Uh, I was working um, with a U.S. company um, in Moscow, um, and they were uh, negotiating terms of an agreement. This was a business deal. And um, I was working with individuals also who were having difficulty working with their Russian counterparts over um, getting agreement around certain terms as well as um, being able to enforce those agreements um, and making sure that they could follow through and rely on those agreements. And ultimately, Susan, it came down to the fact that no matter what we negotiated, no matter what we agreed to, things would always, um, be unreliable. And, and that what was said was being interpreted, uh, by the Western side, uh, as, um, as untrue and untrustworthy. I think it was an, it was a significant issue of trust um, that never was established, 
and it was very difficult for the um, Western team to establish that level of trust. And why, Dean, you and I know a lot about building trust in groups. What happened? Why? What do you think got in the way of there being that kind of trust that would create something where the agreement was much more uh, reliable, to use your words, or something that people would follow through on? I was I was always working at a level that wasn't um, at the level that needed to be yeah, worked at. Yeah, uh, such an issue, right? It's like, ugh. And, and how was that influencing what was going on? So you were trying to do the work at such and such a level, but up above you, there was stuff going on that was undermining the trust that you needed? Precisely, mm-hmm. precisely. And, and that this was the case with every individual involved in the negotiation that at least I had contact with. Um, and ultimately, in Russian culture, and I think it's even more true today than it was then when I was doing this, and I think historically it's always been the case, uh, the ones that you needed to have that trustworthy relationship built with in order to be able to rely on everything else that everyone else said was a very, very small handful of invisible people that I certainly did not have any contact with, nor did any of the Western team. And I've so been so I've been it, so frustrated about this myself, and you know, like sometimes coming in and working an issue, like people people will identify. I mean, I'm often working with you know conflict and coaching, and people will identify the issue at one layer in the system, and I will always try and go as high up into the system as I can, but often I will get blocked at a certain point, and even though I know that what's going on up above that is really influencing what's happening, but I can't. You know, sometimes you just can't. You can't get there. That's right. And if you're not talking to the people that you need to have to need to be talking to, and certainly in the case of Russia, that you need to have these very intense, personal, trustworthy relationships with um, everything else is um, very uh, unreliable. And um, what makes it even more complicated, at least in my experience working with Russians, is that all indications up until you make this realization and up until you realize um, what's really happening uh, is that the relationship can be done according to Western norms, that the negotiation can go forward based on Western norms um, until you realize that that's not the case and that it is um, – the reality is completely different from what what I started with. Sorry, Dean. When you say can be done according to Western norms, what are you saying exactly? That there's a reliability, that there's an implicit trust, that when we say yes, we mean yes, that when we have an agreement, we have an agreement that we can expect to go forward based on on Tuesday what we agreed to on Monday. In other words, I would um, say there's a contractual view. You can re- you can enter into a contract, you can negotiate, you can sign, and that that will be something that you implement versus a different kind of worldview that you really will implement around a relationship that you've built of trust and that contracts are not that meaningful. Right. And, and that's a broad theme in many, many cultures. Um, I think the particular challenge with Russia, I mean, for example, in China, we know um, that, that that's an issue um, in some uh, – in many other cultures that that's an issue where, it, where implementation is based on relationship as opposed to contract. 
Um, and that's okay. But therefore, access to the, to, to the people with whom one needs to have the relationship and the ability to build that relationship with those key individuals in those cultures becomes critical. The challenge I had with Russia was that access to those individuals was very, very difficult. Right. While in many other in many other cultures where where these kinds of trustworthy relationships are critical, um, there are avenues for building those relationships. There are ways to do so. And what challenge one of the things that challenged me with the Russians is that the way to build those relationships in Russia were simply um, unacceptable to me and to many of my Western colleagues. Like what? It involved it involved things we couldn't do, like a lot of drinking. I mean, every, <laughs> or uh, what? No, no, that was that, that would have been the easy part. Okay. <laughs> no, ultimately, ultimately, it, it, it meant um, the the company had to make a decision as to whether or not they wanted to participate in graft. Uh huh. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And that and was, that's yeah. that's that's usually the line that we can't cross. Yeah. Gotcha. And that was the only that was the only access to those individuals we needed to have those trustworthy relationships with. Yeah. So, um, so I'm 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 at a point of like, oh, could I dig down deeper there, or or, or you know, I don't know if you want to tell me what exactly they wanted from you, but part of it, partially, I'm thinking maybe we should go to a different story and hear a different culture and a different place where. <laughs> Um, unless you want to fill out that story any more than that. Um. Well, the frustration for us is that everything fell apart. It didn't work out. Yeah. And it didn't work out because because they couldn't cross that line. Yeah. And, and, and I think had there been an awareness right at the beginning, uh, and th- these were lessons learned by me too, right? Uh, because I'll talk about Russia differently today based on these experiences. Um, and I'll advise people based differently than what I did then. Um, but Dean, sorry to interrupt you. Is it, is it Russia or is it just the issue of corruption that is so rampant around the planet? Well, that's it. I mean, I think it is an issue of corruption, essentially. And uh, to what degree is that more prevalent in certain cultures? To what degree does a culture support that kind of um, approach to, to business and to life? Um, is the question. I think if you go into a place like Russia, you want to know that this is an issue that needs to be managed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And how you want to manage it is a decision you need to make right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. 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 Now, d- is it any more prevalent there than it is elsewhere? Um, I don't know. I- is it more ultimately determinant of how things work? I would say yes. So uh, knowing that, you you have to have a different kind of strategy. I know in Afghanistan, because, you know, was, I don't know if you know, I was there working with the women leaders in the government. And for them, this is just the biggest issue. I mean, just because I think those women have huge integrity and they're looking at a system around them that is very corrupt, like very, very corrupt. And it's affecting everything. And yeah. Right. And I think, Susan, you're raising a really important point, which is that culture is a piece of the issue uh, when working with other countries, um, it's not the only issue because the political and the economic and the social issues 
can be profound. So if, if we're dealing with a failed state, if we're dealing with a government that's highly corrupt, um, maybe that's a bigger issue than managing the cultural differences. How, however, as a culturalist, I like to look at that question and see, okay, what is the bigger issue when I'm working in a particular country? And why do we have economic and social and political systems that are more or less problematic, uh, more or less corrupt, more or less difficult to work with? Um, and, and when I ask the question why, then I think we can look to culture to get some answers. Um, Could you so give us you a give us a yeah give us a, oh go ahead I wanted to have you give us yeah, a story so, about that or but go ahead I well, y- yeah, yeah sure I mean, you know if, if if you look at it, and typically you need to look at history if mm-hmm. you look at Afghan history if you look at Russian history for example okay um, going back to my experience there as a culture that was a challenge for me to work with um, the the expectation for having to manage issues of corruption. Uh, and or failed states should be high because we should expect it because the history tells us that we don't have traditions in those cultures that support the norms that we're expecting. We being uh, the, so, we being the Western United or the the U.S. or the West or uh, what's who's it, we? Yes, it, uh, we being me. In, okay, in, in, in this case, mm-hmm. uh, me and and the Western organization that I represented, for mm-hmm. example, in that in my work with Russia. If we had gone in with that understanding, a deeper understanding of that, we should have been able to expect this kind of um, government and political issue, uh, which is not a cultural issue per se, but it is a major issue of, and a source of frustration. Mm-hmm. So, Dean, um, yeah, maybe we could shift to an example or or get into how uh, cultural understanding has, you know, in what ways bringing cultural understanding has really um, facilitated people coming together? Any stories like that? Yeah. Um, in a lot of my work today, we're working with global teams, maybe 20 people in different locations that have never worked with each other, never met with each other, uh, but are now working with each other virtually every day. Um, And who may or may not have received any kind of formal training or understanding about cultural difference. And now they're having to work with people on their team, 19 other individuals who, who may think differently, may solve problems in different ways, may have different expectations about the degree of trust that they should have with each other before they can accomplish their task, uh, may have different ways of approaching the accomplishment of a task. And so the first thing we have to do with these teams, and, and we want to take them through a three-step process. Uh, Let me just ask you first, is, is that, that, so are they, are these teams, are, how are they interfacing? Are they interfacing through video? Are they interfacing through email? Are they coming together? Uh, when you, you know, you, I know you're going to get into your uh, three-step process, but how are they seeing each other or, or communicating? Well, in my experience, most of them are communicating virtually via email every yeah, day, yeah. right? These, they're working with each other on a particular global project. Right. And so it's mainly email, occasional video conference, and maybe very occasionally the opportunity to see each other face-to-face at some sort of um, periodic quarterly or once-a-year meeting. And uh, is it fair to say 
Is it fair to say that email is just such a, a, a interface that's so fraught for cultural misunderstanding? I don't know. I mean, I think it's a, it's, it, it's fraught for misunderstanding, period. But, you know, you add the element of culture and you're really asking for, for trouble, possibly. But Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, with culture, the story is always it cuts both ways. Mm. I, I think in many ways we have an opportunity with email. Okay. Um, if everyone understands that um, it the word means the word and that anything that's not in the email is um, not intended, then we can get some clarity pretty quickly. But we have to get everybody to understand that that's what we're using the email for. Um, I, I think if we're using a form of global English, for example, uh, email is not a bad way to overcome language barriers because it does allow people to sit and read and analyze as opposed to immediately respond to a voice in a language that they may not understand well. So uh, it allows for a certain analysis and, and, and deliberation that I think is important to overcome language barriers. But you're absolutely right, Susan. It cuts the other way too. And in cultures where most information is embedded in a contextual understanding as opposed to in the words that are used, email is probably a terrible way to communicate mm -hmm. because it's only words and there's very little context except for the occasional emojis that we want to throw in there. <laughs> so <laughs> so um, if we get the team to understand this issue around just emailing, for example, that there are some of you probably not going to say as much as others need to have said in order to be sure that we're understanding each other and confirming the understanding that we have with each other. Uh, if we can just get that on the table and recognize that as a fact, that's step one, understanding that there are cultural issues that need to be looked at and that have an effect even on things as simple as how we email each other every day. So for us in our work, that the first thing to do is, is create awareness to the fact that culture is on the table and, and analyze where it affects our day-to-day -day work with each other. And Dean, how do you describe what culture is to these folks? What do you even say it is? Do you like my definition that I gave earlier or do you – you know, the, the culture is to a group, what personality is to an individual or like a group personality? Or what do you say? No, I like that. I do. I wrote it down, Susan. Oh, good. <laughs> good. <laughs> Glad to be of service. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think the first when we talk in this first stage of getting people aware of cultural differences, the best way to do it is to get them to tell their stories uh, about how they've had cultural experiences that they didn't understand and how they reacted to it and to see themselves first. You know, before we can explore, quote unquote, the other, uh, we need to explore ourselves and recognize that we are ourselves cultural beings and that the way we behave is can be very, very different and mystifying to others and that it's, it's a way of behaving that has been defined by other forces, not just our personality, but the culture in which we've grown up. And we know that, um, you know, I'm and that sure it gives us a set. you've heard the saying, you know, the fish is the last one to know that it's swimming in water. When you ask right. this question, do people even know what to say? Because are they aware that they are cultural beings or in how it might have influenced them? 
um, more today than before, but not deeply. And, and that goes back to what I referred to earlier. I think there is a, a higher awareness of the fact that the fish can live in different ponds and that there are other ponds out there in which different fish are living. <laughs> um, but the knowledge of what those ponds are actually and what those differences are, drilling down beyond just awareness, is something that still is is se severely lacking. Um, so could you say that's more, what that? Yeah, say more about that. Like how is how does it show up? And yeah, well, I know that someone from if I'm in Kuwait and I'm speaking to someone in Brazil. I know that the person in Brazil may have a, way, a different way of thinking about things, uh, but what those differences are, I do not know, mm -hmm. and and that's and that's still the issue that's on the table. So I think globalization has given us a higher level of awareness than 30 years ago, where people denied the fact that cultural differences either existed or had an impact. Now there's a level of acceptance that they do exist and that there's some impact, but how it impacts us uh, and what do I do about it, that's still very much um, not there. Dean, let me stop and you on that. Sorry, I, I, know, I know I keep uh, intervening here. Um, but, but I know in this conversation that sometimes there is that point of view of like, oh, cultural differences are irrelevant. We are, we're globalizing, you know, like everybody, everybody speaks English, which isn't true. Uh, we don't really need to understand this. Um, but now you're saying something different. You're saying that maybe there is more acceptance that, in fact, cultural differences are real and um, that, in fact, it really does behoove us to, to understand it better. Well, um, I, I think I agree with your first statement, the former and, and not the latter. Um, I'm, I'm not sure people are, are recognizing that the cultural differences have that much of an impact. And I think this is a we're at a dangerous point, actually, in this issue right uh -huh. now, because there is this masking of cultural differences. Globalization masks cultural differences. And I think it creates a perception that, well, we're all kind of becoming the same anyway. Um, and I, I think on a superficial level, very superficial level, that's probably true. If you're in the global business world, for example, and you're stepping off of planes, um, one day you get you know step off a plane in Sao Paulo, and then you go to a meeting in Tokyo, and then you go to a meeting in in Sydney, Australia. At a superficial level, there is a there has been the development of a of a of a certain similarity. So we're all using some form of global English probably and in this kind of a context, in a, in a global business environment. Um, we're all using technology. The office that we walk into is probably similar, similar to the office that we, that we left. Um, and there may be certain practices in business that have become more universal. But this is a very thin level and a, and a very superficial level. Once we get beyond this, the cultural differences that are more fundamental are profound and have remained profound. And I think globalization, in fact, has made the deeper cultural differences more visible um, and more of an issue as it has simultaneously created a, a very superficial level of, of similarity around the world. Could you give some examples of um, the, 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 how did you word it, the, the deeper cultural issues 
not the superficial stuff, but the deeper stuff. Yeah, I, you know, the deeper, you know, the iceberg model of culture has traditionally been talked about and used uh, where what, it, we what say, is that? Yeah, t- tell us what that is. Yeah, uh, what we're saying is that the things that you that you perceive through your five senses is the tip of the iceberg. And that's the the, the smallest part of culture. Um, it's the most visible. You can hear it, taste it, smell it. You step off a plane, you see differences or similarities, but it's all through your perceptions. Um, the deeper part of culture is, is the part of the iceberg that's under the surface and you don't see it. And um, that's much more important because these are the values and the beliefs and the um, orientations that people have, expectations about how life is supposed to go. Um, this is if you don't understand this you're not perceiving it uh, you don't see my values when you see my behaviors uh, you only see my behaviors but my behaviors are a reflection of those much more fundamental deeper values until I explain my values to you or until my values become explained to you by someone uh, you don't understand them and they may represent profoundly different ways of uh, experiencing the world could you give an example so i think yeah so i this expectation that we were talking about before for example about the degree to which i need to build trust before i can actually feel comfortable about working with you Hmm. um I think your experience, Susan, in Latin America probably um, showed you that there is a a high need for the Latin American version of this would be referred to as simpatico, right? Where we need to really um, have a a sense of trust and confidence in each other in order to move forward with making decisions and solving problems. Um, But in other cultures, it works the other way around, certainly in the business world, where we first do the job, take care of the transaction, and by virtue of the success of the transaction, then we have trust with each other. So knowing that this difference exists and understanding that this is a difference around values and expectations of how the world is supposed to work, we can extrapolate, therefore, certain kinds of business behaviors that that we should expect. And we can understand those different business behaviors if we understand these fundamental value differences. Let me ask you something about that, because my experience um, from working uh, globally is that um, building relationships is still much more the norm than the kind of contract view of getting things done. Like there's many, many more cultures in the world that really like, really prefer to build a strong relationship and then through that get the job done versus, you know, write the contract, do the agreement, and then build the relationship through that. Is that, is that your experience as well, or do you think that's, that's not true? No, you're absolutely right. And to your point, that is precisely why I say that fundamentally – Globalization has not really affected the, the, the fundamentals of cultures. Most cultures prefer to work that way. Yeah. That's the value system. And after 30 years of globalization, that's still the case. Yeah. And, and yet from the Western business perspective, the expectation is, well, geez, after 30 years, how have these folks gotten it? <laughs> Can't we get on with this? You know, write the contract for Christ's sake and get the thing done, you know? 
<laughs> and so we're living at a time where the expectation for this kind of change is there, but the reality is not. Mm-hmm. And and I and I think that only heightens the um, the frustration that that we see when these two examples of just using this as an example, these two cultural differences come together. So uh, I want to, if we could, you know, I mean, as you know, this podcast is really about building common ground in groups. Uh, It's about building peace. And, um, you know, I'd love to get into some of your reflections about um, whether cultural, I mean, we're sort of talking, we're skirting around it, whether cultural competence is critical to bringing people together. Can you bring a group together and not have cultural competence? Is that possible? I think that you can. Yeah, I think you can bring a group together and still not have the participants at a level of cultural competence that is, let's say, desirable. Um, I think the more fundamental issue is finding common ground. And how we do that, I think, practically does involve culture most of the time. Um, But it doesn't have to. If if the focus is really building common ground and there are cultural differences at the table, what we want to do is use those cultural differences to help build common ground as opposed to allowing them to become problems and distractions and, and boulders that are in the way of building common ground. And of course, I can't help but think about gender because, uh, you know, it's it's people don't think of it as a cultural difference often, but... It is set. I mean, I was in on the interview with Rabia Roberts. She does a lot of work around the world with her husband, and she was talking about how much they would go into a place like Myanmar, and really, it was so important for both of them to be seeing because they were seeing things very differently, and the seeing was based on gender. You know, it's like they just had a different worldview, a different set of experiences, so they would understand things differently, and um, um. And I, my experience is that it's true around the world that men and women have just had a different cultural, of course, we're different culturally by nationality, but we're also, but that issue of gender is, is huge, as, as can be other aspects of identity group um, difference. Uh, ab- absolutely, absolutely. I think you are speaking about identity group issues, and, and gender is uh, one way of, of um, identifying a group, uh, race, um, privilege, class, you know, all of these things, Uh, how a particular culture responds to these issues, how they make them either relevant or not, um, how they assign different roles to different genders or generations or class or race uh, is the question. And that's where it becomes cultural. Um, So in Myanmar, we have a certain set of expectations around how genders interact with each other, uh, which can be which are probably very different from the expectations about how genders should react with each other in Sweden. Like what? Could you give an example? Uh, Sweden is a more what we refer to as from a cultural perspective as an egalitarian culture where the expectation is that uh, women and men share equal role responsibilities throughout society and how that plays out in terms of family relationships, interpersonal relationships, uh, even business relationships um, is going to define 
Sweden's orientation around the gender issue. Um, in in Myanmar, it's a much more hierarchically oriented culture where gender is a way of identifying differences in how people will relate with each other so that uh, the expectations of how men and women relate again interpersonally in terms of family relationships uh, the roles and responsibilities and how they'll work with each other if they work with each other at all mm -hmm. uh, is going to be very different from that expectation in Sweden so I think it becomes cultural when the culture has to decide how we're going to address gender or class or race um, and that's where that's where it becomes a cultural issue. Yeah. So, um, getting into you know, getting into this this topic of um, building common ground, how how important is well? First of all, I did want to ask you, how do you define cultural competence? Do you have a definition for yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, cultural competence is the ability to see how others see you. And to understand what you can do about accelerating the achievement of a common goal. So how do others see me? How am I being perceived? And, what, and do I know enough about them in order to find common ground between any differences that exist in these perceptions? And what's my ability to make that happen? How culturally, how competent am I in making that happen? So coming back to, um, yeah, so coming back to peace building initiatives and the role of culture in that, um, I don't know, your reflections, your reflections on this topic? It goes back to, I think, what we were saying at the very beginning, um, how, my experience as a kid growing up in a very multicultural environment was my experience was safe. And therefore, I was able to and that and that's probably based on a certain degree of privilege. Um, I was able to see these differences, even though they were mystifying, even though they were different, even though I didn't understand them. I was able to approach them with a sense of curiosity, openness, and an expectation that it's going to be great. It's going to work out. Um, we're going to have, ultimately, it's not going to affect my ability to understand my friend or build a relationship with them. Um, and so that very positive, productive orientation that I, I, I was lucky enough to have, I guess, um, I see still as the fundamental task when working with people uh, who are experiencing cultural differences because it's not so automatic. Most of the time, I'm looking at people who are looking at differences fearfully, um, with a sense of dread, with a sense where the, mystif where the mystery is something that is um, a negative. Um, if we're coming into a situation with, with individuals who are culturally different, and if there's a lot of hidden agenda or I, I should say an unawareness of what my own true needs are, then culture becomes a reason why it won't work out. It becomes, you know, the, the projection 
process occurs where I project my fears um, and make it your fault that things aren't happening. And it's your fault because you're different from me. Yeah. But um, if we approach yeah. mm-hmm. it positively, mm-hmm. um, where we first understand what our true needs are, then we can and, and understand what the other's true needs are then we can use the cultural differences that exist between us as ways to achieving those needs. Uh, and so I think it's about helping people at first figure out a little bit what they're about. Who am I? What do I want in this interaction? And un- then understand what the cultural differences are and use those cultural differences to actually help each other achieve the fundamental needs that we each bring to each other. Yeah, I, I also, um, I know I've shared this with you in the past, that, that I also like have such a view of group dynamics that, um, that if you, uh, and it relates exactly to what you're saying, that if people feel safe, um, I might say, if there's more, if there's, a, if there's more collaboration in a group, uh, versus competition in a group. If there's collaboration in a group, well, let me say, if there's competition in a group, you will often see people get into what I call groupocentric behaviors, or like they will break down by identity groups, you know, because there's less trust in the room. And if the climate is shifted to one of collaboration, the cultural differences still exist, but they won't they won't be such a source of polarization. I think they'll be more likely that people will be tolerant of them and look to understand them and and appreciate them. Does that do you agree with that or does that does that seem true to your experience? Absolutely true. Absolutely true. And I've seen it happen. I'd like to see it happen more frequently than it does because the reality of my pra- of the practical experience that I have working with business teams around the world is that both sides are going into a meeting with very different agendas and cultural differences simply become opportunities to blame the other for the reason why things aren't happening. Yeah. And, um, if we can create a more collaborative environment where we are, where we are able to actually put real needs out there on the table, then the cultural differences don't become that much of a barrier Mm -hmm. And if we can actually help both sides understand those cultural differences that are at the table and see them objectively for what they are, just different aspects of our human nature, then we can actually work with those differences and and help them achieve the common ground that we're both looking for. Yeah, Bob Staines, who was the last uh, interview, was talking about he's dealing with dialogue issues around very polarized issues and talks about just how much front, well, I don't know if he uses the word front loading, but how much you really need to set things up, the climate up before you even bring, you know, because there's such an opportunity, you know, so, so much of an inclination for people to misperceive, prejudge, see the other through those eyes of mistrust. And then you add all the cultural elements that you're talking about. And, you know, I think that just gets um, so much exacerbated. So I'm, I'm wondering with your the global teams, do they give you an opportunity to really do some team building, team setting, climate building in the teams so those cultural issues will not 
get uh, become opportunities to blame, for instance? Uh, to the degree that we can, that's precisely how we start. We want to uh, help each side of the team or each member in the team reflect a little bit on on what their concerns are, what their needs are, uh, what kind of agenda are they bringing to the table, and what do they expect of the others, and really try to have a discussion around that and do some team building. Now, I say to the degree that we can, because uh, you know we're always subject to the realities of um, the resources that we're given to do our work. Right. Uh, but I think it's an important first step. So, Dean, uh, words of wisdom, final words, reflections. You've been doing this work for a long time. Any any words of wisdom, particularly for the younger listeners, this podcast about culture, you know, anything you want to say about it in terms of um, how uh, its importance and particularly its importance to the niche of this podcast, which is obviously building peace. Yeah. Um, we're not all becoming the same. Just because we have more opportunity to interact with each other, probably greater than ever before in human history. Um, we have more cultural contact, probably greater than ever before in human history. There are more people moving across the face of the earth every day than ever before in human history. We have the opportunity through this increased cultural contact to, we have a choice. We can either see the differences that exist and they do exist and they are profound and they are not going away and see them as opportunities to view the world differently from the way we thought we should. We have the opportunity to find new solutions to old problems because of new ways of thinking that we can learn from other cultures. Or we can choose to see all these cultural differences that we're experiencing because of increased intercultural activity or we can choose to see these as threats and we can choose not to see the opportunity that exists, but to use the difference as a way of blaming the other for our, for whatever failure we're experiencing or whatever difficulty we're experiencing. It's a choice. Um, history tells us that increased inter intercultural contact here's the bad news, right? Does not tend to create understanding, peace, brotherhood, and kumbaya. Uh, it's not automatic just because we're increasing our contact with each other. In fact, historically increased any kind of cultural contact initially started, created hostility, misunderstanding, and all sorts of catastrophe until uh, hopefully through some uh, through some mechanism, we learned enough about each other to finally find ways to work with each other. And that usually historically has been a very painful process. Um, so the bad news is that intercultural contact does not create automatically the kind of peace building we're looking to do. In fact, initially, it might create just the opposite. But therefore, the missing piece is the piece about understanding the culture, about understanding oneself as they interact with another culture, uh, understanding how to remain authentic and yet anticipate what the other culture means so that we can f build some common ground uh, so that I can still be myself but understand what you need 
so that we can find something in the together. Um, this is a choice, you know, and I think intercultural, we have the gift right now at this moment of being able to interact with other cultures and the gift of being able to learn about these differences and find ways to use these differences to accelerate common ground, to find ways to, to find where, where do we, where do we come together? This is a gift. Uh, a great opportunity. It's also Technology such a, allows it. Yes, I find with myself, because I've had such a passion for uh, understanding cultures other than my own, and I think it's always that it it just gives me a, a closer view on what it means to be human, because uh, it kind of gets me out of my own cultural conditioning and, and really seeing the bigger picture, which is such a, it's such a, that is such a gift, as you say. Um yeah, ab- absolutely, um, and and it cre- it creates a sense of mystery and wonder, mm. uh, which I think has been the source of my energy in all the work that I've done. I just love the mystery and the wonder of it all. Yeah. So, Dean, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time and energy and all the work that you've been doing around the, wor- the world. I hope you continue uh, and keep up, the- keep it up, and. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah, thank you very much for your time and hope to see you again on the Peace Building Podcast. Thank you, Susan. It's been great to catch up with you. Thanks. Hope you enjoyed the show. Our next episode is with a former British ambassador, Charles Crawford, who was the ambassador to Bosnia in the immediate post-Civil War reconstruction. Should be super interesting, so stay tuned for that, as well as my speech from Shanghai, and wish me luck. <laughs>